out of all the uh, incidents I've actually handled in the past, I wouldn't call it attribution. I think a lot of people focus on, okay, who is the nation state is in this. For me, it's more of, I, I just need to know enough, right? What the motivation is for this particular attacker. Then it actually very quickly tells you what that next step is or what that one step plus one is so that you can actually hit them off and actually cut it off from a containment perspective. Hello and welcome to Code to Cloud. I'm Tim Chase, Global Field CISO at Lacework. And here with me today is Kevin Tham. Kevin is a CISO leader in the Australian digital banking sector and a seasoned information security veteran in the financial services industry. Most recently, he served as a CISO at Atika, a purpose-driven lender. Kevin, welcome to the show. Good morning, Tim. Thank you. So give us just a little bit of background on, your, on yourself. How did you first get involved in security? Unfortunately, I fall into that stereotype of uh, it started with a VCR taking it apart, which actually sort of started, you know, if you actually sort of decompose it down, more like in the fact that it was about curiosity. So a lot of my time, and this was back in the 80s, and I've been curious about how things work, which then evolved into this thing called computers that I got introduced into my life and getting understanding a bit more about, oh, wait a minute, computers can talk to computers. And that sort of evolved, you know, very slowly, I guess, into understanding and finding out that I really like something, you know, which made my learning process a lot easier. And, you know, then the progression into, you know, a bit of a tertiary education in the late 90s into this thing called network security. And unfortunately, I am one of those really boring people where, that's all I've done, security, you know, back in the BBS world, all the way through the IRC era to what we have today. So, you know, being only interested in security, that's what I learned, all bits and pieces. There were no formal sort of ways of learning anything from a security perspective back in the late 90s, which then actually led into me actually starting to teach and research in the field. And that was rather interesting as well. Again, you know, doing research in that field, there weren't a lot of conferences for you to actually present to. But I did about five years of teaching in, you know, the network security data communication side of the world and then progress into engineering and building security solutions and also setting up a security operations center for a large Swiss bank in the early 2000s. So that was my slow and progressive ease into the security industry. That's perfect. And if we could do a poll with this podcast, I would ask the audience how many people know what a VCR is. Because that would probably tell you the demographic that's out there. That would be super interesting to me. Obviously, I have fond memories of VCRs and then laser discs and all those cool things that it's all people know about. But you forgetting the great Betamax versus VCR. Oh, the Betamax. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's hilarious. Yes. I am glad that, that VCR kind of won there, I think. But that, that's fantastic. So you actually have an interesting career path because a lot of people that I talked to started in something else and moved their way into security, but you kind of found an early niche inside of security. You never started in one field and worked your way there. So there was never really, it doesn't sound like there was really a decision of, I'm going to make this switch. You just happened to kind of find your interest, stick with it. And that's what you've been doing now for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it goes back to interest, right? And I think one of the luckiest things that I've actually experienced is finding out what I really liked. 
And I, you know, as you mentioned, I just stuck with it. And rightly or wrongly, because I do have people making comments to me today going, isn't it great you're in an industry that, you know, is highly sought after? Normally, my response is fantastic. Back then, when I actually got into this, there was no industry. And I didn't even know if it was going to be an industry. The only thing I knew was this is the only thing I was interested in. That's it. That's so interesting. You know, that's why I've been in it for 20 plus years, because it's always changing and it keeps my interest. If I don't keep learning, if I don't keep doing new things, I get bored. And so this is one of the best industries for somebody like myself. But one of the things you found an early interest on, it was cryptography, right? So tell me a little bit about your background in cryptography, because it seems like that was something that you've been working on for a while and that you've maintained interest in over the years. Absolutely. Now, I'm not going to say I'm a propeller head when it comes to cryptography. I appreciate the math and appreciate the science of what cryptography is. There's also a a level of art form to it. My sort of transition, and and back in in the 90s, right, security was basically twofold. So you've got network security. And then you've got the cryptography. And cryptography has been around for a very long time, right? I mean, you know, we talk about the classical ciphers, you know, that Caesar used in in the past and the evolution of that and and how computers made it more interesting and stuff like that. So basically security was just, there were just two camps back in the day of network security, cryptography. And I was a protocols guy. I liked how TCP IP works. I like how Kerberos works. I then under really appreciated how key exchanges works and et cetera. So my interest in the cryptography world is about the interaction between how you utilize something powerful like cryptography to do your confidentiality, integrity protections for the communication of computers. And that's sort of where it piqued my interest. Now, I, I do dabble a little bit and appreciate, and, and that's probably the key word here. I appreciate cryptography enough to be able to go, okay, I think I sort of understand it, you know, how RSA work, how Diffie-Hillman, you know, key exchange works. But uh, that's as far as I'll go. If you give me a piece of paper and go, hey, work out the modular between the two numbers, I'll go, okay, you know, I'll get a math question <laughs> and, and that person will do it for me. Yeah, you're like me. You're not going to sit there and create a new unhackable cryptography key or something like that. No, no. And, you know, but at the same time, I guess, you know, similar to yourself, there is that continual curiosity of what, you know, comes into play. Cryptography is one of those things that is, you know, where the cusp of, you know, a change in terms of approach from a cryptography perspective. Mm -hmm. That that makes total sense. But you know, since you've been doing it for a little while, what is cryptography like today versus when you first started looking at it, you know, 25, 20 years ago? 25, 20 years ago was interesting. I mean, my introduction to cryptography was all the classical ciphers, right? On one hand, there are differences. On the other hand, it's no different. And cryptography on a very sort of foundational level, we are literally talking about How do we exchange information utilizing a key that is very difficult to be derived so that we can protect the information or the payload that we're trying to transmit? You know, if you look at all the classical ciphers, the most powerful compute unit, you know, in the classical ciphers world were humans, right? The Caesar cipher, the substitution ciphers, etc. 
But then that basically got defeated by statistical analysis, right? The cryptanalysis of understanding the language that the particular message was actually being sent in and understanding the, the occurrences of the numbers of E's and A's and all of that to be able to then you know, decipher what it is. That sort of then got evolved into the Enigma machine, right? In World War II, where it was basically... Okay, it was a classical cipher, but then it was a revolving key. And they utilized a particular machine to be able to do that. And that sort of, you know, upped the game from that as well, which then evolved into, you know, your, you know, the cipher systems that we have today when computers were introduced because Enigma was actually then easy to be defeated. And for the longest time, we've been running with the whole, you know, public and private key, asymmetric key cipher systems. And we're basically coming to a point now, we're talking about quantum computing and what does that actually mean for the current situation with cryptography as well. So the evolution has always been about predicting or making it more difficult to try to guess what the key is rather than the underlying foundation of what the protection cryptography actually gives as well. In the past, we have one more thing, you know, in the early days of computing about, you know, how much compute cycles, asymmetric versus symmetric, you know, etc. I'll argue that we can actually sort of protect everything using asymmetric keys these days because of the amount of compute cycles we have, right? But that's probably something that's not an issue anymore. But with quantum computing, absolutely, it starts changing the assumptions and the sort of approaches that we need to actually uh, derive a key from that. Well, that was my next question is, with, with all of that, one of the advantages of cryptography in the past was that they were hard to break. It was, you know, and if, when you have a good password or you have a good encryption scheme, it would take you, you know, years and years and years and years to, to break it, right? But, you know, now with computing power getting cheaper and cheaper and quantum computing being a real thing, and at some point in the future, you know, that's going to be more accessible, you know, to the masses. How do you think that that affects cryptography? Because it seems like keys that would take, you know, years before would take seconds or minutes under quantum computing. Yeah, I mean, there are two sides to the story on this one, right? And absolutely, it, it's right to be able to focus. And people like NIST are absolutely concerned about it. The biggest risk is basically, you know, people who hack today, collect the information, and hopefully a bit later on, they have built the right compute power to be able to decrypt the information itself. It's an interesting sort of risk in that sense because cryptography is one of those things where you go, and there was an assumption we made in the past, right? We try to make it difficult. So the information we're protecting, by the time someone actually decrypts it, the, the assumption is you will decrypt it, that the information is irrelevant anyway. I think that's the reality on that one. It gets a bit muddied up with the PI information, but ultimately that is part of the cryptography scheme or the protocol in that sense. Now, with quantum computing, absolutely there is a risk in terms of that actually happening. However, I'm going to flip it around, and, and I don't think there's enough talk about the other advantages of actually having quantum computers to be able to create a lot stronger crypto systems or schemas that actually can protect more effectively as well. So there's actually two ends of the spectrum. The risk, I think, lies in historical stuff that we actually do deal with. And if quantum computing actually eventuates, 
The other risk is if you don't move into a more modern crypto system, then you absolutely you will actually be exposed as well. But then you've got the flip side that goes that there will always be the ability to create a stronger crypto schemes to be quantum resistant as well. And, and absolutely, if you look at NIST, they've come up with four different schemes that they feel is a good idea to do it. Now, what's interesting is, you know, and something that we learned from TLS is that as much as we talk about, you know, grandfathering or, or, or you know, getting rid of the older cipher systems, we still have people using TLS 1.0. So, you know, how do you actually motivate people to move crypto systems? That's, I think, the bigger management issue there. That's the tricky part because, you know, speaking as a former CISO who, who've tried to do this, I mean, just getting people to go from TLS one two to one three or one one to one two like that's a real problem right when Absolutely. you have people change your encryption encryption schemes especially when you're dealing with customer interactions right where you may have a thousand customers that need to connect and there's always going to be those stragglers right and that if you oh, yeah. force an upgraded cipher suite or force an upgraded you know encryption algorithm then they're not going to support it from the client side and all of a sudden the business is like, what are you doing? You can't do that. So that's, that's a real problem. It is. And you know what? It, it, and it's also a bit of a misunderstanding from the business as well, right? Because they go, no, no, you, you got to support it. And then you go, well, are we actually going to be playing the game of going down to the lowest common denominator? And, and that's what, you know, a lot of times that's actually happening. Now, I think, you know, what we can learn from that is to go, what is the visibility of usage for particular, you know, cyber systems? And that manages a better outcome, I think. So, for instance, if you actually have a website that goes, look, we're an e-commerce website and we only support 1.3, but then you've got stats that's taking about how many people are actually connecting using 1.0, for example, and then inform the business that way. So, therefore, it actually sort of gives you a better discussion. So if you go to the business, the business goes, look, no, everybody needs to be getting, you know, has access to our systems. Then you can go, look, honestly, about less than you know, 0.02% of our connections utilizes it. And when you actually say that to the business, I think generally they will sit up and go, ah, oh, right, okay, that number seems really low, right? And then you go, look, based on that particular number, that number even falls even further when you talk about people who actually purchase from our site, you know, which goes down to, not point, not 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 one percent or something. I think that's the one learning you know I've learned in my previous role in the retail space is that once you actually start getting information, when the business understands that information, they then make a decision based on the information you give to them, rather than in their minds, it's oh that's just going to break things, and breaking things is a bad thing, and therefore they go no, let's not do it. You know that's the kind of discussion we should be having with the business. And I think that's one of the things that I find in general is finding security, finding a way to take our security concerns or requirements, so flip them into things that the business understands, you know, the security implications, like speaking in their language, like I've described it before as, as kind of being duolingual, right? like being able to talk business and tech, right? And so, yeah, Absolutely. you're spot on. So to throw another term out there and just to really muddy the waters, how do you think that AI is going to affect cryptography, right? We know quantum computing, obviously the speed and the brute force is there. Like, what do you think about AI and how it may affect cryptography? Look, I think not directly. More likely from, if I look back to the classical crypt analysis sort of approach 
of looking at statistics of you know certain things actually occurring and or, or sorry, statistics of occurrence of certain characters based on the language you're using, etc. I think from a large language model and, and LLMs, which is predominantly what Gen AI is today, it's really good at, you know, finding that, right? And I think that's probably the closest we will get to an issue. Now, that's also on the assumption the crypto system that you have chosen doesn't give you enough randomness, which then allows you to do that particular sort of analysis on the actual message itself. Then we have a bigger problem, right? <laughs> I think, you know, the crypto system is broken. End of story. So, you know, honestly, I think that's probably the closest we'll get to from an AI perspective when it comes to crypto systems. Yeah, that could be interesting. Like I'm sitting here in my head, like thinking through different scenarios of LLMs and just asking them and maybe automating and saying for a certain company, find you know any weak ciphers and then asking it, how would I exploit that, right? And maybe using it as kind of a, you know, I don't know if it's a learning, but just kind of a way to automate it and think through it, right? I think that's, it's going to be interesting. It, it will be, you yeah, know, and, and look, ultimately it wouldn't be, then be, I guess, a direct attack on the cipher system, right? If you actually have an open source intelligence platform that is actually based on an LLM on a backend, for example, and it starts taking in all this information that's on the internet, you know, understanding cipher systems on, on websites and stuff, then it becomes a very interesting sort of platform to go, okay, Austin platform, tell me which, you know, website has the... TLS 1.1 that's still running and, you know, et cetera. And it becomes absolutely really interesting because someone's doing the job for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's good. That, that's a lot of good conversation about cryptography and, and I like to talk about that, but uh, it's probably going to get over my head pretty quickly. So let's shift topics a little bit and talk about a SOC scenario. So obviously, you know, putting back on your SOC leader hat, one of the things that security leaders I think that are on top of their minds these days is a breach, right? Everything that we do, all the controls that we put in, ultimately is to try and prevent a, a security breach. You've got the SEC here in the United States that's got some new rules about what happens if you have a breach and how it has to be reported and so on and so forth. So it's on top of everybody's mind. But not everybody has experienced a breach necessarily. There are a lot of new CISOs or maybe CISOs that just haven't, you know, uh, been in that position. So I'd like to just kind of role play and run through something with you that is kind of one of the more common attack vectors, right? So you're a SOC manager and you've got a tool, your cloud security tool of choice, and it alerts you to an AWS compromised credential, right? So you've obviously got some sort of a credential that um, would, would allow people to log into your AWS account and, and you've been notified that it is compromised. That's a pretty common scenario. Like, what do you do? Like, tell me the path that you go down, the questions you answer, who you bring together. Like, if it's a real-life scenario, walk me through it. I think the very first thing is the triage of it, right? So an alert comes in, the first thing you go is, how real is this? And that's a determination you can make, I think, fairly quickly. And it's really important to be able to go whether the event, and, um, and apologies, right? In the many years of uh, experiencing the operational uh, side of the world, that's the very first thing you do is to alert real or false. It's not about whether you, you trust your tool. It's generally the first thing you do. You triage it, you pick, figure it out. And that's usually with whoever the analyst is and people who have access into the cloud environment. Now, it depends on what organization you're in. It could be your own SOC analyst who has the enough skill and access to do it. 
or it could be if you're in a large organization, your analysts would then be able to call a security engineer or an engineer to be able to access and figure out if it's true. So that's the first thing. Once you've confirmed what it is, you go into the next phase of containment. Now, it's interesting because this is where the pathway sort of splits a little bit. Now, containment is really important. That should be your priority. But then you start bringing in your team for your incident response as well. And it's interesting because I've seen a lot of plans from people going up, you do this, and everything looks really linear when they actually go into an incident response. The reality is that a lot of things you know, happens in parallel. So this is where it splits out between what you actually do from a containment perspective and what you do from an incident response perspective in terms of bringing in your comms, bringing in your legal team, bringing in you know, the various management team to be able to inform them of what is actually happening. Now, this is an important distinction to have two separate quote-unquote functions where you have the doers and you have the decision makers. Now, the decision makers at the moment are basically informed of what is actually happening during the containment phase. And the priority is on the containment phase, which is for the doers to do. As the manager, I will then look into it and go, okay, how are we breached? What's actually happening? You know, how do we, you know, figure out what that one step ahead is so that we can sort of cut them off so that they don't get to the next stage. Now, it's interesting because out of all the uh, incidents I've actually handled in the past, I wouldn't call it attribution. I think a lot of people focus on, okay, who's the, the nation state is in this. Now, for me, it's more of, I, I just need to know enough, right? What the motivation is for this particular attacker. Then it actually very quickly tells you what that next step is or what that one step plus one is so that you can actually hit them off and actually cut it off from a containment perspective. Attribution can come in later, but once you actually understand, go, well, is it a script kitty? Is it, you know, is it an organized crime? Once you actually understand, and you and the key word here, understanding what their motivation is, that's the key thing. Attribution of where it's coming from and which group it is, we can do that later on. So you basically find out and understand what their motivation is, cut them off and kill off and, and contain the situation. Now, as you're actually doing that, any new information that you've figured out, you then inform the incident response team or the governance team who makes decisions. Now, if you actually realize and go, oh crap, you know, there's data being exfiltrated, right? Then very quickly, the doers need to go, okay, how much information is being exfiltrated? And then you sort of split, right? You try to figure out, okay, what are they after? And at the same time, you've got another sort of group that basically goes, how do we kill it off, right? And then figuring out how much information is going out. And the moment you find out any information, you let the IR team know. And that's when business decisions come in. Do we have to tell regulators? Do we have to you know, bring in cyber insurance people? Do we have to bring in third party, et cetera? And you know, sometimes third parties or incident response gets called in a lot sooner. That can absolutely happen as well. But that's where the decision-making happens, right? If we actually need to spend more money, the decision-makers are the ones, then they will be the right people in the room to make the call. You know, generally speaking, I think from a IR policy perspective as a CISO, I always go, look, Mr., Mrs., Ms., whoever CFO, you have to give me a delegated authority 
under these abnormal circumstances to be able to spend to up to a certain amount for these purposes. And that needs to be done way beforehand as well. And look, when containment is sort of uh, handled, that's when you start going, okay, what do we have to do from an external communication perspective? Do we have to speak to customers? Do we have to talk to regulators? Do we have to talk to law enforcement, you know, et cetera? And that's when, you know, the decision makers become the priority in terms of what, you know, they need to make. Now, I would actually say if you can actually have a physical wall between the decision makers and the doers, that would be the best way of doing it because the doers will be very, quote unquote, noisy. And that's the function of what they do. You know, there's a lot of adrenaline, et cetera. Decision makers need to be more level-headed and understand the information that's presented to them. And when you actually approach it this way, you know, you start having a, a more succinct sort of working relationship. That's sort of my approach to how you do incident response. It is the most chaotic time when you're actually dealing with any sort of incidents, large incidents anyway. But, you know, the one learning that I've seen is that once you don't have that separation, you have a lot of crosstalk. And when you have a lot of crosstalk, you have a lot of frustration. And then you're going to end up with a lot of information that can be misconstrued. And therefore, bad decisions can be made from those information as well. So, you know, that separation is the number one focus when I actually come to any sort of these kind of incidents. And then, you know, ultimately, when we know we've actually done the containment, we've taken all the forensics, then comes the whole recovery, which is where the doer's part is. Then you you sort of change gears in terms of it's not very security focused now. You've got to bring in IT. How do you do the, the backups and the recover back to where we think we have? But it will be led by the fact that we've all got all the forensic information for them to actually do that so that you can kick in your BCP, you know, and, and disaster recovery sort of plans to bring up the systems as well. But at the same time, that, that governance sort of group needs to continue to exist until we are satisfied that we have met all obligations from, you know, your regulation and legislations and all of that. And that needs to continue. And that, to be completely honest, can go on for a couple of months. But that's the way that I would actually approach it. That makes total sense. Who's a part of that incident response team? So generally speaking, I would have the number one, uh, I am always the best friend of the legal team. So the legal team is always with me. I make a joke that everywhere I go, the legal team is always my best friend. And it's always been true for the last few organizations. That it's in. better than the other way around, right? I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you get a legal team. You've got sort of the business owner of that area that you're actually dealing with. And it depends on how severe the incident is. You might have to bring in the CEO and the CFO. So if it's a really big one, you do have to bring them in. If not, I think for a medium-sized sort of incident, business owner and legal team and someone in security to actually make decisions around what's actually occurring. However, the CEO and the CFO sits on the side in terms of you are being informed. We don't need you to make any decisions. You are just being informed what is actually occurring. Now, if it hits a certain severity, absolutely, the CEO and the CFO needs to come in and the comms team, you know, et cetera, needs to be part of that team so that you can shorten communication between the decision made and the action that needs to be taken. So it's a bit fluid in that sense. But, you know, for me, it's more about how do I shorten 
any communications about decisions made versus what needs to be done. And severity tells you, right? If it's a big one, then bring everybody in so that you can actually enact certain communications out as quickly as possible. If it's a medium-sized one, you go, look, you know, you can sit out there, don't worry about it, we will deal with it, and then let you know when certain things need to occur. When is it appropriate to make the board aware, like timing-wise, severity of incident, like when would you think we need to make the board aware of this? Okay, so really large incidents, for example, this is why the CEO is in there. And it is the call of the CEO to go, dude, does the board need to know this? And how quickly? And generally, that's when the CEO can pick up the call and go and call either the company secretary to call the chairman or the CEO can call the chairman directly and go, this has occurred, you know, and we're going to enact a certain sort of incident response to this particular incident. Now, this is important because... I think there's a lot of focus on incident response just for up to the sea level. And the question is, have you done the incident response for the board level as well? And remember, board level directors, they are on more than one board. So therefore, they need a plan as well, right? The, the question I, you know, that gets raised is, if a media outlet goes to your board of director and asks them to give a response, you know, will you feel comfortable enough that they're going to get the right appropriate response, right? And what is the communication channel? And therefore, the board needs to understand what the, the incident response plan is and what is appropriate in terms of what they need to do as well and what the uh, information channel is rather than them having to guess, right? They can always have the ability to call the CEO and the CEO can give them the latest update, etc. So that's sort of really large sort of incident. That's the reason why the CEO is in there, you know, not, not to insult all the CEOs in there, but that's what we need them there for. The CFO is there to give me the money, right? <laughs> that's the reality. Everyone has a function in that. Now, for, for smaller incidents, it, it goes into your board packs and, and stuff like that. So that's when they get informed, when they get the board meeting. But all of this, it seems like would be a really bad idea to happen without some sort of a prep. Right. And so, you know, kind of having those incident response scenarios, tests, that seems to be super important. It's one of the things I always used to advocate for and plan for. Like, what are your thoughts on those? How often you should do them? Because it's, you want everything to run smoothly, right? You don't want to be second guessing what to do, who to report, what to, and all of that. Like, what's your opinion on that? Absolutely. So, was it Muhammad Ali? Everyone has a plan and you get punched in the face. It, it, look, this is important, right? Because, and it's not the fact that you just have a plan, but it's also the fact that you've actually done enough tests and have a bit of a muscle memory in place to be able to enact the plan itself. And this is where you draw in the sort of the military learning of you always have a plan, right? Do you have a plan for absolutely every scenario? Number one, I'm going to say no, you absolutely cannot, you know. But you just need to be able to understand the, the parts of it, the various moving parts of it, and have the ability to have that muscle memory when you actually get to the incident to deal with it. Now, how often it depends. From a board perspective, I'll go look twice a year, probably suffices for them to be involved with the much larger certified test. From a C-suite perspective, it could be every quarter. And then from a VR, BCP perspective, I'm going to let the tech team decide on how often they have to do that. But part of the incident response process will sort of bubble that up as well. 
Because when we're doing that test on that lower level, it could be every two months or whatever you want to choose, you will be bubbling up and go, hey, you know, we're going to enact the BCP. Oh, this BCP was updated in 2020. You know, I'm going to take a note. <laughs> um, have you actually reviewed it? Have you, you know, et cetera kind of thing. And that's rather interesting. Look, don't piss off your tech team, right? But the reality is these are the little, little things that you pick up when you actually do that sort of incident response sort of uh, tabletop exercise. That makes total sense. We are getting close on time, but I wanted to ask a couple of quick rapid fire questions, right? So quick responses. So the first one is, What's the one piece of advice that you would offer listeners to increase their cybersecurity? What's the one thing they could do to increase their cybersecurity the most? Okay. Very counterintuitive. Go broad, not deep. Now, uh, understanding a wide range of topics and how it interrelates with each other is very important. That gives you a, a much better sort of situation awareness across the field. If you want to specialize in one area, that's great, but no one can be specialized in all areas. So look wide and have a situational awareness of what's actually happening around you. Perfect. And it is on my list next year to come to Australia to do a CISO summit. So when I go, what's the best coffee that I need to find? Sydney, Melbourne, I don't care. What's the best coffee? Uh, Does that have to be a place, the best type of coffee that I should look for? Oh, look, you know, I'm not going to... There's an ongoing war between Sydney and Melbourne, <laughs> in case you didn't know. And look, I'm, I'm going to ask you one very simple question. Do you sure. like a European-style coffee where it's milder, you know, with a bit more flavor profile, or do you much prefer the... I call it the Italian way, where it's much more robust, or, or Turkish way, much more robust and dark, and, you know, to a certain level, bitter... And that sort of determines which city you would go for from a, from a coffee perspective. I like the lighter. Like I can do the dark, but I, I do tend to get kind of the medium roast. Yeah. And then therefore, I would say go towards the Melbourne side of the world. And that's where you get that kind of coffee. And I always say one other thing, and I'm not going to say a specific coffee. I'll go make a choice, especially when you actually like a, a more milder approach to coffee. Approach coffee with and, and make sure you have some sort of fat in it. You know, and fat actually brings up the flavor of the coffee. And I know I do have a lot of Italian friends who actually will jump on me and go, no, 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 it's all about espressos. I'll go, that, that's fine. Then put a bit of sugar in it to actually get that, that taste of it out. But when you actually go for the milder stuff, you know, have some sort of fat in it to be able to bring up the flavor more. So that's the only thing I can say about the best coffee you can have. I love it. That's solid advice all the way around. All right. That's going to do it for today, listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. And don't forget to subscribe and throw us a rating. We'll see you next time on Code to Cloud. This podcast is brought to you by Lacework, the leading data-driven cloud-native application protection platform. Lacework is trusted by nearly a thousand global innovators to secure the cloud from build to run. Lacework delivers true end-to-end -end protection, empowering customers to prioritize risks, find known and unknown threats faster, achieve continuous cloud compliance, and work smarter, not harder, all from one unified platform. Learn more at lacework.com.